This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson, President Jefferson. This is John. Are you there? Good day to you, citizen. Okay, President Jefferson, welcome back to our weekly podcast. I've had people actually ask me a little bit about how Thomas Jefferson would reflect on some of the things that are happening in the world today, Paris particularly. In fact, some of our listeners have noted that the that you as either president uh, or maybe secretary of state had to deal with 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 pirates and uh, and what passed for terrorism in your age right i did you know when i was the president of the united states beginning in 1801 the first great foreign policy crisis was about islamist pirates in the north african zone so we would be sending a molasses ship or a ship with cattle or wheat through the Mediterranean, and they would attack those ships and torture some of the sailors and take them prisoner and put them in unspeakable dungeons and then ransom them back to the United States. And this is just sheer piracy. And when we asked why they would do such a thing, they said that the Koran um, allowed them to do it because it insists that anyone who's an infidel either be forcibly converted or killed. And we tried to point out that we were a secular nation, that we have a neutral secular constitution, that there's no official church of the United States, and it didn't impress them. And so I'd been dealing with this from the time I was in France in 1785 all the way through my time as Secretary of State and Vice President and now President. And so it was an exactly analogous situation to some in your time where where these Islamists are not content to live and let live. They want forcibly to convert the infidel, and we are the infidel because we're not Muslim. Yeah, right. These Islamists, though, meaning these... Well, it's funny. You've got to watch your rhetoric this day, Mr. Jefferson. These extremist Islamists, that's not what Islam teaches. I mean, we are told time and again that Muslims around the world don't believe in the actions or philosophies of these terrorists. Well, maybe so, but I bought a Koran. I had a library of about 7,000 volumes, and I was curious about what we then called Mohammedism. And I bought a Koran and read it, not in Arabic, of course, but in the translation. And there, it, it reads a good deal like the Old Testament. In other yeah. words, there's a lot of violence and call for jihad and war in it. You know, we, we fortunately, in Western civilization, had a reformation in the 16th century and, the, of course, the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And that enabled us to effectively discard the more violent uh, verses of the Old Testament. But Islam has never had that reformation, and so they're, in a sense, locked into their Old Testament views of the world. That doesn't mean that all Muslims agree with that sort of thing, but any Muslim who's looking for a reason to hate the infidel and to use violence and torture against that person can find some slight justification in their great book, the Koran. So what did you do about this? We tried to treat with these pirates, but of course, you can never really come to terms with barbarism. And so I sent, in the spring of 1801, a a small naval squadron to the Mediterranean and some Marines. And we had a four-year, I suppose you'd call it a police action, 
against them, and we bloodied the nose of the Pasha of Tripoli, and we showed them that we were going to fight rather than to be tortured. And even though we didn't win a stunning victory, we won enough victories there that they realized that it was better to treat us with more respect, and so they released the prisoners. We continued to pay a very small tribute to those countries in exchange for peace, but we effectively settled the issue. Hmm. You know, I think a lot of times when you tell stories like that, how complicated it must have been. It's not like you can communicate online or pick up a phone and talk to somebody, even on our side, say the ship commanders over there. You put guys on boats on the East Coast and then I guess sent them a sail. And how many days, weeks, months later before they get there? And who knows what they're going to see? And then they don't have any communication back to you, not with any swiftness about what to do next and what is how what is our policy? Are things changing? Uh, I, I don't know how you guys were able to do international diplomacy back then. Very, very difficult. So we send, let's just, I, you know, we, we, I say we, the United States, a merchant in Boston sends a small ship about the size of a large yacht filled with molasses uh, to the Mediterranean, and it's just sailing along um, in, on its way to, say, Palestine, or Egypt, and suddenly these Islamic pirates uh, attack it and board the ship. Well, there's no way for me to communicate with these people. I might not learn of this for seven or eight months. So these sailors have been in dungeons and are being tortured for months before I even know that the situation exists. Once I know that it exists, I do something. I send a response expressing American outrage and, and demanding the release of these people. That takes six months to get there. They reject it. That takes six more months, so years go by. You're exactly right that we were ill-equipped to be able to handle situations like this because the communications were so slow, and we didn't know how many sailors had been kidnapped, how many were dead, how many still lived. All we knew was that we had a demand for ransom that was not fresh any longer. It was as if the, the attacks in Paris had occurred in January, and you're just now beginning to respond to them. What do you think about the U.S. response today or the international response? Well, I, I do believe that civilization with a capital C has to stand up to barbarism. It's better if it's done in a united way. So France and Britain and the United States and Spain and Portugal and Finland and Germany and so on. Because then that pre presents to the, to the criminals, the terrorists a united front of civilization with a capital C. And if civilization doesn't stand up for itself, the first provocation will lead to the second, and the second to the third and the fifth. And so even though I'm a pacifist in philosophy, I do believe that civilization cannot survive if it doesn't stand up for the rights of due process and the personal security of individuals. And so I suppose I believe that these pirates, these Islamists, have given you no choice but to use military means, if you can, to secure the lives of innocent people, just going to the theater or going to a restaurant in Paris. You know, the part of this that breaks my heart is that it's Paris. I, I spent five years in Paris. I consider it to be the most civilized place on, on the, the whole planet. And for terrorists to attack it, it's, it's, it's greater symbolism of their desperate barbarism than if they attacked New York or Philadelphia. Hmm. 
But uh, there are some people who say, and I've I've thought this at times myself, that what also needs to happen is the refugees themselves need to turn around. That this, and I. I'm for harboring the refugees, by the way. But it seems to me like the United States can no more impose democracy or a change in a belief system in that part of the world. We we can't do that. It needs to come from within. This is the fight of the Syrians. If people are overtaking their land and killing them or imposing beliefs on them they don't like, then they're the ones that need to do this. And I know France has been attacked and other countries have been, and, and, and certainly the United States was on the 11th of September. But this is their fight. They need to, they, we, we, we can't impose Western standards or beliefs on them. No, you're right about that. When the French Revolution began, I was called in by Lafayette and others to advise them. And I was very squeamish about this because I was an American diplomat, but I did host a couple of dinner parties at my salon near the Champs-Élysées, and they had long discussions. And from time to time, I would say something. And I, and I did say, you can't impose American-style constitutional democracy on France uh, as if it were just something that you could start tomorrow, that France doesn't have the same history as the English-speaking peoples. They don't have the Magna Carta. They don't have the Bill of Rights. They don't have our Declaration of Independence. They don't have the due process of the British common law, which has enabled us, after after centuries of bloodshed and conflict and agony, finally to establish a republic. And if you try to impose that idea on another country that's still locked in a previous phase of its existence, right. you're just setting it up for chaos and, and, and a military dictatorship, which, of course, is exactly what happened in France. And it even makes them look a little more sympathetic. I mean, what a great recruiting tool if the United States, you know, the infidel comes to fight. Uh, you can just see them turning to the population and saying, see, I told you, see, I told you. Um, I, I want the women to demand more rights, you know, and I want the, the civilians to, you know, it, it, this is the way the United States fights its battle sometimes. Um, it is we, a battle of ideas. We arm the civilians. Our, our ideas will prevail. I think that the, the, the values that we created in the Declaration of Independence and our Constitutional Bill of Rights are universal values and that every country on earth, Syria, and all of the Mesopotamian countries and Egypt eventually will be republics like ours. But it may take a thousand years. It may take five thousand years. Some will come sooner, and some will come later. But eventually, all will uh, commit themselves to respect for human rights the way we have done. And so, I think that the best export for the United States is the idea of America, not to meddle in those countries with our troops if we can avoid it. Well, amen to that. I wonder if maybe, and this is something you could not have anticipated, but I wonder if social media isn't actually going to accelerate that process because I believe what you say, and maybe the Internet is going to be the means by which that happens. John, you couldn't be more right. You know, in my own time, I said the fact of the book means that liberty will prevail and despotism uh, will fail because the book... We had presses suddenly in the 18th and early 19th centuries that could produce a 1,000 books in a week instead of one book every three weeks. The book is small. The book is portable. 
And I said that if we can if we can make those books infiltrate these despotic regimes, we will be able to help those people find their freedoms and their liberties. Because once people read about their rights and realize that there are nations on earth that live according to, to constitutional principles and the rule of law, they will never be able to rest again until they have achieved those same rights for themselves. So if, if that was true of the book, you know, produced by presses and, and hand-sewn together in the 18th century, imagine what social media are doing to undermine despotism and ignorance and superstition in every dark corner of the world. Wow, amen to that. Uh, one last thing I wanted to just bounce off of you, President Jefferson, now that you mentioned that, the Oxford uh, Dictionary people, the Oxford English Language Dictionary, each year announces the word of the year. Each the year word of announces the year. the word of the year. So for 2015, the word of the year is the smile face emoji. No. So it's a little circular happy face with tears coming out of its eyes. It's laughing so hard. And it's a happy little thing. It's a, like a punctuation point, you know, at the end of a sentence or maybe it just as a response to something. I'll tell you something funny, and then your your response back to me will just be the smile face emoji laughing. And that is the word of the year for 2015. I'm going to say something that's going to appear to be very radical. Okay. I don't know what an emoji is, but I've seen one. If that is true... Yes. This is related directly to what happened in Paris, France last week. If the West loses its ability to stand for something, for ballet and for opera and for theater and for prose that is reasoned and firm and grammatical and articulate and for architecture and for all of the arts of civilization, great literature, great philosophy, uh, great music, if the West ceases to hold up that value system and that aesthetic and instead becomes frivolous and self-denying and nihilistic, the West deserves to fail. It takes every country, every citizen, every enlightened person lifting our culture at every turn to, for clarity, for science, for elegance, for a commitment to human rights, for this to work. You cannot have a civilization that becomes so postmodern that it takes a, a small image and allows that to be popular enough to find its place in the world's greatest dictionary. And when you do that, you have announced that you are a frivolous civilization. Well, that might be a little dramatic there, President Jefferson. It's just I don't a think smile so, face citizen. emoji. I don't think so at all. I, th I think that every civilized person has to be lifting our republic at all times. And we have to rise to a higher state of civility and information and education and science if we want to survive, because the, the barbarians are always out there at the gates of Rome. Well, I asked uh, some colleagues about this and said, is this the end of civilization or is this an efficient way to communicate? But that was me just being dramatic. It's not the end of civilization. There will still be ballet. I, th I think you're attaching too much to this, sir. I, I, I want to hold your hand here and, 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 and kind of walk you off the cliff. You can do that if you like, but every person who is listening to us has been wrestling for the past week with what does it mean when a group of Islamists, radicals, criminals, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, go into a restaurant in the world's most civilized city and mow people down like sheep 
people who have no complicity in any wars in the Middle East. When this happens, everyone has to question what exactly is at stake here. What's the meaning of this? What are they attempting to bring about through acts of random slaughter? And so you have to you have to ask, what is there anything in our civilization that is uh, fragile or perceived as weak or vulnerable? And we must shore those pieces of our civilization up. In other words, I'm for reinvigorating Western civilization rather than arming ourselves to the teeth and making Western civilization so admirable that even a, an ignorant uh, Islamic terrorist will see its value and want to preserve its beauties. It's funny because I've got a trip planned to Paris in the, in the spring, and at first I thought, oh, I don't want to go, skip it. And then I thought, oh, uh, I guess we'll go, we'll be fine. And now I'm feeling adamant about it. It's like, hell yeah, go. let's go. We must go. In fact, come with us because we don't want to let them win. You know what I mean? You're very correct about that. We, we must maintain the principles of respect and tolerance and orderliness that that are the foundation principles of the West. And eventually, even the most obscurantist evangelicals of the Islamic faith or other faiths will come to recognize that and say, you know, I, it's not my civilization, but it's an admirable civilization, and there are things we can learn from it. Not a lot to laugh about this week, President Jefferson. We're going to close now, but I will give you this challenge, and you have one week to respond to it. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Next week, we'll close our weekly podcast with you telling a joke. I only have one, but I will rehearse. You've got one joke in your arsenal? I wrote 83 volumes worth of English prose, and if you comb them for humor, you couldn't produce a pamphlet. But there is one joke, and I will attempt to tell it. I know that all jokes are about timing, so I will rehearse all week before playing my violin. All right. Well, you, you play the violin, get in that zone of yours, and next week, however serious and thoughtful you are, and I don't mind you being that this week at all, my goodness, but next week, at least close us with your joke, and then we'll all smile. I'd like you to get one of those drum things. You know, when they tell the joke, and then there's the drum roll. 